From their padded cell in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is The Spiel, episode 28, Listener's Choice. So hi there, and welcome to The Spiel. I'm Stephen Conway. And I'm David Coulson. And we've got a a very special episode this time. Great episode. (laughs) Every single segment in this show is a result of a listener contribution, a listener suggestion of some sort. All the games we're going to play off the list, the backshelf spotlight, truckloads of goober, everything you're going to hear came from one of you fine listeners out there, and, and I'm looking real forward to... Letting everybody know, right? I, I think they did a great job. Yeah, the show's looking cool. We we played two awesome games off the list. You about killed us with the lengths on these games, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. people. But <laughs> if you don't like the show, it's your fault. Yeah, <laughs> send yourself hate mail. Exactly. <laughs> and we have a special audio guest from Tom Vassell. Right, we got his a, response from the uh, Smallier, so that'll be fun, too. which is cool. And, of course, we got a couple contests. Yes. We're kind of doing some changes, so look for uh, some interesting stuff with our two contests. Ways to win free stuff. That's always, always good, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, enough yammering here. Let's just jump right in and get to it. Game news and notes. As we said in our little teaser before, um, everything in the show is from you, the listener. So our news and notes here comes from a couple listeners. I'll go first, and uh, my little piece of news came in from Scotty in Mississippi. We've heard from him a couple times. He's oh, one yeah. that has those great themed parties. Yep, he's down even got there. a nickname. Ex- exactly. A donor to the site. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! So he said that he thought every all the listeners should know about Mr. Jack. It's published. It's a game that's published by Hurricane Games. It was published in 2006. It was designed by Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Malblanc. It's for two players, ages 9 and up, retails around 32 bucks. Here's a little bit of the story. The night covers the gloomy alleys with darkness, and only a few corners are still illuminated by the gaslights. Eight investigators have gathered to catch the cunning Jack the Ripper, but Jack is in fact cleverly impersonating one of them. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. Yeah. So, it's basically a board game. You've got some character tokens, some gaslight tokens, some character cards, some alibi cards. One of the players gets to take on the role of Jack the Ripper. One of those eight characters is actually Jack the Ripper, but the character who plays Jack the Ripper is the only one that knows that. <laughs> the other player is actually the investigator, and he's going to spend the game trying to figure out which one of those characters is actually Jack the Ripper. All the characters have really neat special abilities that they can do. At the end of every turn, some of the witnesses will declare whether Jack was visible or not. Whether you know that's basically based on how close he was to the the little gas lights or not. The game only goes eight rounds, and the player playing the investigator gets one accusation. Oh wow! And that's it. So <laughs> you better be pretty sure. Exactly eight rounds. It sounds really cool. It's like this crazy twisted. Version, you know, all those logic puzzles that you played combined mm. with some mastermind or some clue, or it's when I I've heard about this, it sounded interesting. I did not realize it was a two player game. So that's yeah, I didn't either really. Until that's, uh, Scotty wrote us I and- I looked it up. The cards look neat. The board looks cool. This is one that I overlooked, and I'm going to have to add it to my want list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ever expanding want list, exactly. <laughs> 
So um, my news uh, for news and notes comes in from uh, Walter Hunt, who is he's actually a science fiction author um, as well as a, a big game enthusiast. Um, and uh, he has recently attended the Gathering of Friends in uh, Columbus, Ohio. The Gathering of Friends, for those who don't know, is this, um, basically, basically <laughs> as the name would imply, <laughs> hmm. uh, a gathering of game people. Uh, that I think it's a week-long event. Um, I believe it was originally sponsored by Alan Moon. Right. And the idea is to come together and play games that either are just coming out, some old, basically just a, a big old game fest. It's sort of an invite-only thing, so it's kind of small small scale, but a lot of the people who go to this get to play games that are either just about to come out or have you know just hit the presses or even some prototypes. There's a lot of prototypes because there's a lot of designers that, that come to this thing that are wanting to kind of play test their newest thing. I think the one rule is they can't talk about the prototype stuff because you know they're it's like showing somebody a rough draft of something you're working on you don't want word to get out if you know (laughs) the draft you wrote really just sucks you know a lot you you don't want to have that public (laughs) knowledge because the end product might still end up being good exactly so walter has put up a blog post about his experience at um gathering of friends and the games that he played it's sort of a list of all the games that were available there that he didn't get to play and then the get the games that he did get to play and sort of a nice little um info nugget about each game and awesome. what his impressions and which ones he ended up wanting to buy or did buy or games that he was able to sort of cross off his list that he thought, well, I played it and I don't really care for that one. And so it's I think it's really a nice, it's not overwhelming in terms of the information, but it gives you sort of a good snapshot of okay. this event. So I would encourage you to check out that. And you might want to look at Walter's books too. It's He's, right. a, he's an author and his books sound cool too. So um, that's walterhunt.com. We'll include the uh, the link to his cool. blog post in our uh, show notes. Um, one, I, we couldn't, before we get into our sort of notes, the one sort of, there's some notes of passage that I, we would be remiss if we didn't cover. There are three magazines, game-related magazines. Uh, uh, this is our one, I guess, non, non-listener non generated, and just because of the timing of it, I right. thought it was worthy of mention. Absolutely. Uh, Dragon Magazine. Dungeon Magazine and Games Quarterly are all going to cease publication within the very near Man. future. And that's just a crying shame, I think, on, on all three accounts. A lot of people, I think Games Quarterly was more for the expansions. That's will be the crying <laughs> than for the content, right. necessarily. But I've been really impressed in the last couple of years, especially with the content that Dragon and Dungeon have been putting out. Now, the one sort of hedge is that with Dragon and Dungeon, they're repurposing some of that content. They're going to make it an online sort of subscription-based uh, service so that you're going to get some of that content. But it doesn't sound like quite – it's not right. – it's going to change significantly. And as a subscriber to Dragon for many, many years, my subscription did lapse, so I guess you could say I'm part of the problem. But it's it's worthy of note to say that these three game magazines are, are have gone – by the wayside, and that's kind of a sad thing. Yeah, that, that's sad a bummer because there's not a there's not exactly a lot of game magazines out there. No, no. By, when you're losing three of them, I mean that's the hefty portion of the market that's right there. Exactly. I mean, wow, that's a bummer. <laughs> so uh, on, gone from bad news to good news. So go, let's get into the contest uh, news we've got to discuss cool. here. So, as everybody's aware of, we have our connection game associated with the Backshelf Spotlight. We're still going to have that. We're going to make a few tweaks to Tweak it, it that we think is going to actually be much better for you guys. We get so many really neat, creative 
guesses for this and we can't we don't have the time to share them all with you guys on the air so we decided instead of having you guys email us with your guesses we're going to set up a forum for it on our web page so anytime you have guesses you'll just be able to go to the website click through to the forums find the specific uh, forum for this particular backshelf connection and go ahead and enter your guess and while there you'll be able to read everybody else's guess and interact with everybody else who's who's made guesses which should be much much more fun for you as the listener. Yeah, you don't have to let us filter through all the good guesses. Exactly. You, can, you can read there and that might give you other ideas and guesses from seeing how people are thinking. We're not going to give away the winner. Exactly. We're not going to chime in on that particular <laughs> forum at all except for maybe to make fun of yeah, it. But. Yeah, I mean we might chime in just if the guess is, is out there but uh, we're not going to give away the winner. We might contact you privately from your email the, um, to let you know, hey, you're in the running for the dice if you actually nailed it on the, on the button but uh, I think it's a great way to, to encourage you to get to see what other creative people exactly. out there are coming up with. Because there's some great stuff that we haven't been able to share. So so that's that's change number one. That's the tweak with the back shelf. Uh, cha- uh, this isn't a change. This is an introduction. As we teased exactly. last time, we have a new contest coming up here that's going to start this episode called Name That Game. Um, now, this contest is going to be a little different than the back shelf spotlight. This one... Um, it, you're not going to know what kind of clue it is. The one thing that's a guarantee is that the clue will result with the name of some game. So the answer to the clue that you're going to get is always going to be the name of a game. And there's going to be a link on the website that you're going to be able to click. There's going to be a little graphic that you can click on that will generate an email to us with the name that game thing. And you can put in your, your answer. You can always just email us and put that subject, name that game, in the, the headline if you want. But we want just the name of the game to come through uh, with those particular guesses so we can just sort through and keep them separate from mailbag or the other things. Now, these clues can be all over the map. (laughs) It could be an audio clue. It could be a little skit. It could... Might be Stephen singing. (laughs) Oh, pray, pray (laughs) that it's not that. (laughs) But... Just keep in mind that it's always going to lead you back to the name of a particular game. And the only, it's going to be a random part of the show. You're not going to know when this little clue is going to show up, except for you want to listen for this little sound clue. And this little sound clue will go something like. That. And when you hear that little jingle, you'll know that the next thing that follows is the name that game clue. You'll listen to the clue. You may have to listen to it to a few times. It's not <laughs> going to be easy. You're going to have to earn this uh, if you're going to if you're going to win the free game because the prize. Maybe Dave, you want to take over here and discuss talk about the, this last episode. But the prize is a copy of Rage. Put out by Fundex Games, which is a great little game company here, right here in Indianapolis, Indiana. They've been nice enough to send us a a handful of these guys. If you haven't had a chance to play Rage, it's a great little beer and pretzels card game. And for the next handful of episodes, that will be the prize. So... That's not not something to stick your nose up. Yeah, at. that's a great little a free game for it, for getting the guess right. A pretty exactly. Now, like Stephen was saying, on that little block that you'll see on our website, that's all about this name the game contest. Um, when we do have a winner, since it is going to be first come first serve, that's going to be the main huge difference between these. Um, as soon as we have a winner, we will go ahead and post it in that block, so you'll. You'll, you don't have to waste your time sending us emails after that point because you'll know that somebody's won. But we're hoping that these are hard enough that <laughs> somebody's not going to guess the correct answer within the first handful of days. 
You know, if you never know. I mean, yeah. you may get that with some. We may get some that last, you know, hey. over several episodes. Yeah, you might exactly. get one that nobody gets for a while. So we're trying to be devious. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but I think you'll enjoy it. And it's a, you know, we're trying to set the contest apart a little bit. So exactly. you've got one that you've got to be on your toes and really, really paying attention. And then the back shelf that you've got, you know, you can take a little more leisurely pace, and you can even interact with people and, and maybe get some ideas from them on what you might think is the right answer. So. So free dice and free games? Yeah. How can you go wrong with that? The List Over a decade ago, we took up the challenge of playing every unplayed game in our collection. Each week on the Spiel, we play one or two games off our unplayed list. The list started over 100 and has been as low as 30, but we're at peace with the fact that we'll probably never get to the end. After all, Life would be awfully boring without new games to play. Let's see which games get crossed off the list. So the first listener <laughs> uh, choice, by far and away, by the overwhelming exactly. majority uh, for the list this week was D-Mocker. Definitely one of the... the titans of the genre and Absolutely. got lots of people giving us grief because we had not played Democker, so we uh <laughs> we dove in exactly. feet first and and managed to not drown <laughs> so let's just get right to it so Democker uh, came out in 1986 it was designed by carl heinz schmiel uh, it was published in germany by hansim gluck and uh the english version is by valley games it's for three to five players they say playtime on the box of four hours, and they're not lying. That's it's easily their first <laughs> yep. couple times. It's probably going to take that long. Once you know how to play, I'd say you could probably get it down to three, three. maybe two and a half if everybody there is really familiar with right. the game. But probably bank on three if you're familiar. If you're not, at least <laughs> four. Probably five. an afternoon. You know, yeah. you're going to need the whole afternoon to play this game. Um, and you can find it online for around $40. I happened to luck into a deal at tanga.com, that online site yeah. where you get a deal a day um, for, I think, 20 That's so you keep, keep your eye out for deals like that. 20 bucks is awesome for this game. For the amount of stuff you get, it's yeah. a great deal. So that's, that segues right nicely into cool. the components. Um, so we've got three different kinds of boards. There are state boards, a national board, and an organization board. Um, the state board is the one that needs to be talked about just a little bit. The state board, there are four of them. They're graphically on the board. They're sort of shaped like a pie wedge on there. And most of the board is, the function of the board is scoring tracks. You've got a popularity track for your political party. We'll get into, it's basically a political game, an election game. We'll get into that in the description of the game. You've got a popularity track. You've got a vote track to keep track of the number of votes that each party's getting. Um, you have a little activity area at the bottom for public opinion cards. There's a media track to keep track of media markers. And there's a little holding pen for your, your little wooden cubes uh, <laughs> that are your meeting markers for your different parties. So there's a lot going on on these boards. But when you look at them, if you think scoreboard, you're going to be right in most cases. You're just keeping track of different scores in different spots on the board. Um, so those are the boards. Uh, of course, what would what would this be without little wooden cubes? Uh, each player has meeting markers, which are little the littlest wooden cubes, media markers, which are bigger wooden cubes, and score markers, which are squished cubes or just flat squares. Um, then we have some cards. There are party platform cards. 
public opinion cards and opinion poll cards. I'll get into those when we're talking about the phases of the games and kind of describe those in a little more detail. Oh, there's detail. phases in this game? Oh, there are phases, <laughs> let me tell you, my friend. <laughs> um, there are also shadow cabinet cards and contribution cards. Again, each one of those cards have kind of their own phase that you're going to use those, so we'll describe those a little more in detail when we get to that part. There are also tiles. There are state tiles and state cards that are going to tell you you put those on the election boards, the state boards, to show which state is actually up for election. That give you an idea of how many seats you're going to be able to win if you win the election. Um, there's also money. There are two custom dice and a little score pad um, that you're going to get to try to keep track of your score from round to round and to tally up your final score at the end of the game. So there's a lot of stuff that you get with this game. As far as Goober goes, this is definitely yeah. qualifies for truckloads. Um, Absolutely. So, on to the game itself. <laughs> uh, D-Mocker, or The Maker, or The Power Broker, is one of the earliest examples of the Little Wooden Cube games and is widely considered to be one of the most influential Euro-style games. Its mechanics rely heavily on mathematics and manipulating several different factors to gather the most votes. That's right, D-Mocker is a game about elections. <laughs> um, each player is going to take on the role of the head of a different political party in Germany. A series of seven state elections will be played in order to determine the winner on the national scale. Victory points are earned for the number of seats you earn, your influence over the national media, the size of your party, and how much your party's platform matches the national op public opinion. The party with the most victory points at the end of these seven rounds is going to win the game. There are seven elections over the course of this game, but there are really only six full turns to this game. Now this is important because in the seventh and final turn, you're going to resolve the election without being able to change the status of the state board. So in other words, you have to plan ahead for the end game because it's going to happen really quickly and you have to kind of set yourself up so that you don't you don't go, oh, I wish I had an extra turn to do stuff because you don't have that extra turn. At Planning the end. ahead is kind of the name of the game anyway. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so um, each turn has ten phases. These phases lead up to resolving and scoring the election on the active state board. Now, it's important to note, though, that there are other state boards that you can influence during these 10 phases, not just the active state. So at the beginning of the game, you'll have all four state boards to influence. After the fourth election, you'll have three state boards. After the fifth election, only two. So because there are only seven elections, as these elections resolve themselves, there's going to be less and less state boards for you to deal with. Put simply, over the course of the game, you're going to need to split your attention between the election that's at hand and the elections that you can see are coming up. Now, there's six turns, ten phases. That means there's 60 phases to the game. And you're home free. Ah, uh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> not, not, nothing but a thing. Uh, so here's a very basic rundown. I'm not going to try to cover every last little piddly detail of each and every phase and every if, and, or but of the the qualifiers that, oh, come, on. that come in. Or I can hear you all snoring already. <laughs> well, you guys want a five-hour podcast, don't you? <laughs> I'll put myself to sleep if I do that. But I want to give you a good sense of a, a general game turn because these 10 phases you're going to repeat basically on all six of these elections. So cool. um, phase one is bidding for the starting player. It's a simple blind bid by each player. The catch is that the winner of this bid can name any player the starting player. 
So in certain phases, it could be to your advantage to go first, or it could be to your advantage to make someone else go first to ensure that you're going to be the last player uh, to go in a particular round. That's phase one. Phase two is swapping your party policy cards. Now here's, I'm going to stop for a second and describe the policy cards and the public opinion cards. These two cards interact in a really interesting way in this game. They both have to do with sort of political hot-button issues. And there's a graphic on each of the cards that represent one of these hot-button issues. So it could be nuclear power, or a genetically modified food, or terrorism, or workers' wages. The public opinion cards have four of these icons on them, and the party policy cards, which is what we're talking about right now, have one. Now, in addition to this icon, they're either going to have a dark background or a light background, which tells you whether, basically, at a, at a glance, whether you're for it or against it. If it's dark, you're against it. If it's light, it, you're for it. Now, in addition to that, there are icons on the cards that have like an arrow up or an arrow down or a check mark or an X on it to indicate the degree to which you're really for it or really against it. But just as a, a quick method, you can just look at it and say light means for dark means against. So phase two, back to the phases here, uh, you're going you're gonna to be able to swap some of your party policy cards. So you're going to start with a hand of three of these cards and five of them face up in front of you, which represent your party's current policy. So you're going to be for some things and against other things. The one general rule in the game is that you can never be for and against something at the same <laughs> time or have two of the same things out. So you're exactly. always going to have five different policy cards out in front of you. The basic strategy in the game is trying to get your policy cards to match up with whatever the public opinion is. I think this is really kind of fun. You can see, you know, you're sort of putting your finger to the wind on a particular election and saying, oh, this particular state, the public opinion is this. So you're trying to manipulate your party's platform to match a particular state so that you'll, you'll get bonuses when we get to the scoring of the votes and things. So in this phase, you can swap out in your hand of cards up to three with the draw deck. Once you've done that, you can take one of those cards from your hand if you want and replace one of your party policy cards in front of you to try to change your platform to make it match what you can see coming up in the state elections. Um, That's phase two. Um, Phase three is the shadow cabinet cards. So these cards, each player has a set of seven of these cards. They're the same for each player. You can play one uh, card per board per turn, but once they're played, they're gone from the game. Each card has a cost in money and a series of modifiers on the card. You pay the cost of the card, and then you pick one of those modifiers to apply. These cards could give you votes, could increase your popularity of your party, uh, could allow you to put or replace a media marker that's already on the board. Um, The more expensive the card, the better the modifiers, the more stuff you can do. The thing to keep in mind with these is there's a limited number, and you're only going to be able to do these once and they're out of the game, but it's a way for you to influence uh, the board, hopefully to skew maybe the election, that might be the tipping point for you, or it might be a way to hose you know, somebody else uh, or make them have to commit more resources to winning the election. So this is kind of a nice uh, unknown factor you're going to be able to play. Remember, one of these cards per board per turn. So you could play up to four in a single turn, but that would leave you yes. only with three for the rest of the exactly. game. So you want to be wise and judicious with your <laughs> playing of these cards. Um, that's phase three. Phase four is forming coalitions. Now, some of the shadow cabinet cards are going to give you the chance to form coalitions. The coalitions can be formed by choice or by force. Um, If you both have played your shadow cabinet cards with the little coalition tokens, then you look at each other's platforms. 
if you and another player have at least two party platform cards that are the same, so your parties generally agree on, a, on several things, then you could by choice form a coalition. If you're ever in a position where you have three matching platform cards with someone else, you can actually force them into a coalition. Now, what do you get for being in a coalition? The advantage of being a co in a coalition is that you can add your votes together at the end when you're scoring the election, and you get to share in the spoils of victory. So, for instance, if you know that by yourself there's no way you're going to be able to win this election outright, that's a great way to try to either force or right. hopefully convince somebody else, strong-arm them into saying, hey, you know, if we join forces, we can actually stop them from winning, and we'll split the winnings between the two of us. So that's uh, that's phase four, forming coalitions. F phase five is buying media markers. That's the big cube, if you remember from the components. For 4,000 euros, you can place a media marker on the media marker track. There are five slots for these markers. Basically, you're trying to get the majority of the markers in any one of these tracks, so three of the five to be your kind of marker. Um, if you're able to do that, then you're considered to have control of the media in that particular state. Now, that's really good for the, that person, that player. If you're able to do that, what that allows you to do is you can replace one of the public opinion cards. Um, there are four public opinion cards on each state board, and you're going to try, um, if you control the media, you can take one of those cards out, and there's a little exchange with some face-up cards over on the organization board that you could replace with a new one. So, for instance, if you had, you know, your party platform was really against genetically modified food, you could take one of the face-up ones, if there was one, over on the side and replace that public opinion so you would have a match. Remember, that's what you're trying to do, is get matches between the public opinion in a, a current state and uh, the, the party platform that you have. Um, the added, the other added little side benefit of having control of the media is you're immune to the bad effects of public opinion polls, um, which is a, a always good, a good thing. A good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're halfway home. We're we're to phase six already here. Phase six is organizing your meeting markers. For a thousand euros per marker, you can place up to four of your little cubes on each of the state boards. Now, the more markers you have on the board, the more votes that you can score later in the turn. So, in general, if you have the money to put out your, your markers, you want to get them out as often and as early as you can onto the board because that's how you're going to, to convert them into votes later in a, a different phase. Um, step seven, phase seven, is the opinion polls. There are going to be four of these cards that are auctioned off face down, one per state board. Um, but the problem is that you don't know what you're buying. You're going to do this little auction. They're auctioned off, and you don't know until you win the auction what you've got. So the poll cards affect the popularity of multiple parties. The winner is going to look at this card and decide whether to publish the result of the card or not. If the result's published, then you choose up to two parties and apply the corresponding modifier. So if you turn it over and it's, hey, I go up two on the popularity track, and my opponent goes down two, Awesome, I'll publish that, and you just mark the little scoreboard on that state in the appropriate manner. If it's bad for you, if it's the opposite, you go down and your opponent goes up, you can choose not to publish it, and in, if that happens, you roll those custom dice that come with the game, and you're going to increase your party membership um, on the national board a certain number based on what you roll on the dice, keeping in mind that the party membership is one of the ways you score victory points at the end of the game. So that's not really a bad thing to do, even if you don't get to do the, pop, the opinion poll part. 
So that's phase seven, opinion polls. Phase eight, we get to the finally get to the meat of the game. We've all been leading up to sort of phase eight and nine, and that's how do you convert all these markers into actually votes that are going to determine the the election. Now, starting with the state board that's farthest away from the active state, you can convert meeting markers into votes. On all but the active state, you have to have at least five meeting markers to even do this part. If you do have those five, then you have your choice of converting any, some, or none of your markers into votes. Now, here's where the math comes in. (laughs) Um, You're going to take the number of cubes that you've decided to turn into votes, and you're going to multiply them by the, the sum of two numbers. Now, those two numbers are your popularity, whatever your popularity is at the time, and the number of matches that you have between your party's platform and the public opinion in that state. So if you're, let's say, your party had a popularity of two, that's the first number that you're going to add together. So you're taking that two, and let's say you have one match, and the rest of them you don't have any opposites because opposite matches, if something's really for it and you're against it, that would be a minus one. Let's say you only have one that's, that's totally matched up, that would be a plus one. So you take that two from your popularity and the one from your match, you add those together, to get that sum. So you remember, let's say you took four cubes that you wanted to convert into votes. You're going to multiply that by the sum of your popularity and your matches. That number was three. So four times three is 12. You would mark yourself up 12 on that vote track and you would take your cubes off the board because those have been converted into votes. You basically do, you decide how many or whether it's to your advantage to take those cubes off on each of the boards leading around to the active state. Um, it sounds a little more complicated than it is, and I promise by like turn three, you really get the hang of this. I think Dave will back me up yeah. when I'm done yammering here. But I, I think that it's it's maybe harder to describe than it is to understand once you're playing the game. Much. But I think this gives you the basic idea of the how these things interconnect. That the cubes by themselves are not very powerful. You can always turn in two cubes for one vote, but that's really you really don't want to do that unless you have to, because those multipliers obviously yeah, a single cube can be worth a heck of a lot more than one. So in general, the basic strategy is you want to cash in as many markers as you can when your popularity is high and when you have a lot of matches between your platform and the public opinion of the state that you're on. And remember, you're doing this not just on the active state, but on all the other states. So you can be accruing votes before the election is actually going to be resolved. So that's step eight. Step nine is basically the same, except you're doing it with the active state. And they remove the qualifier of you don't have to have the five to do it. So all the cubes there are going to score votes, whether it's just the two for one, you know, horrible, or you can get more by doing the little formula, looking at your popularity and your match and doing the little multiplication table thing. Um, after that, basically, you're going to determine the winners. Um, uh, each state chart has a little tally on it that shows, based on the number of votes, the, obviously the player or the coalition that has the most votes is going to be the winner of the election. You look and see how many votes you got, and that's going to translate into a number of seats on the national scale. And remember, the seats are what you're going to score victory points for at the end. So you're going to get seven opportunities in these elections to score seats that are going to give you points. Um, In addition to uh, the winner getting those seats, though, people who finish second and third are going to get seats for their votes as well. So you're never going to get – it's not a winner-take-all. It's a parliamentary system, so you're going to get some uh, seats for the votes that you're able to make in each of the the places. Um, Winners, however, also get 
bonuses. They get sort of the spoils of victory. They get to place one media marker if they have a media marker on the track on the national board, which is directly going to translate into points. And they can select up to two opinion poll, opinion, public opinion cards from that board and migrate them to the national board. So the kind of the general movement of this game is you're going to deal with a state board and basically the winners are going to get to move some of their pieces up onto the national board. So it's kind of cool if you think about the state election having an influence on the national party right. scale. That's kind of the, the metaphor that they're going for. And that part, I think, kind of actually works pretty well. Yes. Um, lastly, phase 10, we've made it to the end of a turn, <laughs> believe it or not. You're just going to collect money. Uh, every turn you get money collected on the number of seats that you win. On the first, third, and fifth turn, you're also going to get money based on the number of people in your party. In addition to that, you've got these contribution cards that you can take side contributions, but there's a the penalty to be paid. If you decide to take those contributions, you're going to lose some party membership. Or if you decide that you don't want to play them for money, you can actually gain membership by saying, oh, I'm refusing those contributions, so you would get people joining your party. Basically, that's rinse and repeat for six turns, and you you've, will find that you've made your way through a full game of, <laughs> of Democker. Um, it's six of these turns, starting at the beginning, going through each of these steps and these phases, everything building up towards the elections, and then once you've resolved the election, you sort of set up the new state that's going to be the last one in the, the line, uh, but you can play cards on it as it starts to wend its way around. So there's kind of a spiral aspect to how you're going to interact with this board. Um, lastly, just remember the four things that you're gonna you're shooting for in the game are the number of seats, that's how you're gonna score points, media markers on the national board, party membership, the total number of your party members on the national board, and the number of matches with the national public opinion that's gonna form just like when you're doing the state. The number of matches there are gonna give you the points. You add up all those points, and the winner is the party that has won the election and the game. <laughs> Just a mere five hours later. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's that's about as quick as I know uh, how to to put Democker in a nutshell. It's a mighty big yeah. nut. <laughs> that was but, awesome. But there's Democker in a nutshell. Dave, take over before I, I die of... <laughs> Boy, what can't you say about this game? It's just... It totally blew me away in its mechanics. I mean, we're fairly familiar. Once you sit down and play this, there's... Not very many mechanics in this game that you're not familiar with already since we've played so many Euro-style games. But knowing that this probably set the stage for some of those is really interesting when you play this game to see, as far as I was concerned, the whole, the whole voting and seats and everything. I think that the theme behind this game is quite possibly responsible for some of the mechanics in the game, mm. which tran translates to me might might be responsible for that mechanic in other games, <laughs> which is really freaky. But this game did an amazing job at combining the mechanics. I don't think I've ever played a game that did so well that combining all the different aspects of the mechanics that you're very familiar with in other Euro games, whether that be you know the votes or the cards, just everything about it. And like Steven said, you're planning four turns ahead every single time and it's just crazy and mind-boggling what what you have to do um, when you were talking about aligning your platform with the public opinion you only get to change one of those cards 
on each of these on, turns. On each one of these boards. So not only are you like, okay, I've really got to change this one because we're going to score this right now. I have to line up if I'm going to get any points for those seats and convert them into votes. But you're looking ahead and seeing what's coming up. You're like, but if I convert that one, I'm going in exactly the opposite direction of the next one. So it's this painful thing of deciding, you know, what? how much can I suffer now to line up a little better the next time or vice versa? And it's great. I think it does a good job of capturing that pressure that, you know, the politicians feel to sort of be two-faced yeah, exactly. and say, well, you know, I have to put on a good face here to capture some votes, but then turn around two seconds later and find a way to convince people who might think the exact opposite that I'm actually their friend. I, that part, I think, comes through yeah, pretty, and then it pretty goes, well. It goes one step farther as you get towards the end of the game because now you're looking over to the national board mm-hmm. and hoping to be aligned with that as well as pos- as good as possible and it's just I just love that mechanic. It's totally yeah. cool. I think I think there has to be a light bulb moment for understanding how all these different little things that you're doing because it's very easy to see. It seems so compartmentalized because you have right. so many phases that to get sort of that gestalt where you see <laughs> how they all kind of fit together and interact with each other that. You know, I can see it taking, you know, even multiple plays before all those light... I'm not sure all the light bulbs have gone on for me, even <laughs> in terms of knowing how to play well. But at least I think I get the sense of how all these things build together to what what you're supposed to do, ideally, <laughs> to try right. to score well on each one. Now, doing that well and, and playing well is maybe a different story. <laughs> and what, but, I, what I would definitely recommend for this game is something Steven did. Steven helped us out a ton about as far as learning this game because he went to the geek and several other sources and printed out some little lists and everything of exactly how the phases should be played out the little score things we pretty much had everything in front of us that we needed to be able to get through this game you know in as effective way as we could and after you know he read the rules multiple times i think his explanation on how to play the game probably was 400 million times better than if we were to have read the rules ourselves. (laughs) So definitely have somebody that's willing to invest some time and convert those 30 pages into, you know, a meaningful 15 or 20 minutes at the top of the game to really get you going. Yeah, ideally that's the best. If you know somebody who already knows how to play, that would be the ideal way to learn because there's, there's so many little picky things that they can go, well, let's start and I can sort of go, okay, now stop and we'll explain this part instead of just doing a big info dump at the beginning (laughs) and having you go, okay, I remember none of what you just said for the last half hour. (laughs) Um, So I do have a couple gripes though that I think are significant and, and worth, worth mentioning Uh, the graphic design of this game. I know people laud it for the look of the game, but I find it a barrier to at least as a new player learning or just trying to, to cipher through the rules, especially knowing that I'm going to have to teach several other people how to play that the way the boards are designed are not a help, and in some cases I think a hindrance to actually learning how to right, the process over that of hurdle, the game, right. that, that hurdle, because there are all these different mechanics that build together in this unique way that the board is so abstract and the score tracks aren't set up in a way visually that would lead you to understand how these connections are made, and that just seems like a, a missed opportunity from my perspective, on the part right. of the, the graphic designer who sat down w- with the, the game designer and looking at ways to understand how the popularity track and the the public opinion cards actually affect the, the vote tally. There's no way visually you're going to look at those boards and understand 
how those things work together. And I think there very well could have been a way to do that. Having some graphic and visual right. sense of my own, I definitely can see the board and, and think of a board that would have had sort of a, a pyramidal scheme to it that would have uh, led you to believe that these things exactly. are sort of building together step to lead towards... Step one with step two to step three takes you to where you're going rather than go from the outside here to the outside here, then come back inside, then go grab this. Yeah. I see exactly what you're talking about. But that was disappointing to yeah. me that, you know, and maybe that's just due to the fact that this game was such a, you know, it's sort of revisionist history. We've gotten spoiled by games that have taken that in because it's an older game. This, I mean, it was so much of a trendsetter on so many right. scales that it's you know, you can rake it over the coals a little. I can rake Valley games over the control, the coals a little bit because they could have maybe updated it since right. they're reprinting the game. I understand. I mean, there's nostalgic value to having the game as it was. But right. to me, if there's a weakness, it's simply that the, the graphic design of the game is a barrier to entry. It doesn't help you to look at those things and just go, whoa, how do all those things fit together in some way that makes sense in my head? And I think you're right. I think it was a victim of being, you know, one of the first, you know, like anything that comes out first, something's always going to come out that kind of makes it a little more streamlined and a little more effective. And I think that probably is that we hope that's the reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just I guess along with that, the iconography, like of oh. the public opinion and the party policy uh, p- platform cards. Right. Some of them are very similar, uh, like the nuclear power one. And they have like buildings with cranes on them. And you have to really look at them closely to tell just make the icon. I mean, the whole point of an icon is that it's simple to read. Exactly. You know, an icon should be readable by its silhouette. You should be able to just see the silhouette of the image and know what it is. And there is no way in heck on a lot of those. Yeah, there was three of those icons tell. that were so similar that from across the table, it was hard for me to tell what you had, you know, mm-hmm. in your particular platform. I was like, what the heck is that? And that's, you know, you know again, I don't think that's nitpicking. To me, those visual things are definitely a help, can be a help right. to understanding and learning and playing the game well. And you, you can tell that they wanted, I mean, they wanted to achieve that, mm-hmm. you know, because they they went out of their way almost in several situations to include icons um, to try and help you. But unfortunately, sometimes they were more confusing than not. Yeah. You know, and then on other cards, some cards they have more icons than you possibly needed. Yes. On other cards, they left icons out that you really, really were hoping, <laughs> you know, were, were going to be on there. Yeah. But, but that, you know, that does, that doesn't, that being said, I still enjoyed the game quite a bit. Francie? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> well, didn't she have a quote after yeah. the game was finished? That <laughs> if I, I can get her to record it down, <laughs> it we'll, was, we'll include her quote. But <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she she suffered through this with us and was a very good sport, but after we finished the game, we were like, so Francie, what would you think? She was like, if I ever play this game again, I need a tub of frosting and a big drink. <laughs> I was like, oh, so I'm taking uh, it. You didn't like this hmm. one, huh? <laughs> it's, I, I liked it a lot. Yes, I did a, too. A lot. Now now that we've played it, now that we're into it, and we've we've griped about what we didn't like, none of that is in the way now that we're completely familiar with it. And boy, I would love to play this a couple more times. Yeah, all the all the criticisms would just make the game that much better. I, I don't think that yes, it, absolutely. It, they inhibit the first time player. Bingo, which can be mean that you might not oh, ever play this game. Right, and that's why I think it's significant to mention because it is daunting. The time limit, the complexity, or just the the length of each turn, and then if right. you have that additional barrier of the board, just visually is a kind of a jumble in terms of understanding how things work together. There are going to be some people that are going to pass this game by that I think might enjoy it, and if at least one of those things seems like it is fixable, 
right. if that wasn't there, I think it opens the game up to a, a wide, an even wider audience than that might give it a shot. So cool. <laughs> thanks, thanks for thanks for forcing us to to get this off the list because I am not sorry oh, that, no. that we did this. I'm glad that we had the good excuse that you gave us the excuse right. to, to dive into Democker and hopefully we've encouraged you to maybe get it off the shelf if you haven't played it for a while or give it a shot if you haven't haven't tried it. Especially if you like Euro games, it's a great one to kind of play the uh, you know one of the grandpappies <laughs> of of the Euro style <laughs> games. It would be a good one to to try out. So first game off the list. D-Mocker. I'm Eric Dewey from Onboard Games. And I'm Donald Dennis. And I'm Scott Nicholson. And you're listening to The Spiel. Or is it The Spiel? Well, if you were German, it would be The Spiel. But uh, I think we're American, so it's Spiel. Well, thanks again, guys, for that great little promo. Thanks to uh, Donald, Eric, and Scott from Onboard Games for that yep. cool little snippet of stuff. New podcast out. Um, check them out at onboardgames.net if uh, if you'd like. I think that they are doing a great job over there, and, and thanks for a little promo. Pretty cool. Awesome. So oh, on to number two. Second game off the list. Not quite as hairy as the first but still physically a huge game. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And that was Railroad Tycoon, the board game. It was co-published in 2005 by Eagle Games and Winsome Games. It was designed by Martin Wallace and Glenn Drover. It's for two to six players, ages 10 and up. List for 60 bucks, and that's what you're going to pay for it because it's kind of an exclusive to fun again since they have the rights to distribute and possibly even reprint some of the Eagle stuff when they went out of um, out of business, yeah. Um, this is kind of an interesting game. It's kind of a hybrid between an older board game and a computer game. Because there's elements from Age of Steam, the board game, and from Railroad Tycoon, the computer game. Both of them have kind of been streamlined and watered down a bit and then blended together to form this game. So it's got kind of a funky heritage or you know whatever you want to say. Um, a little bit of storyline behind it. Um, it is set in the eastern United States in 1830, the dawn of the American Railroad. Cities are teeming with potential passengers, and new factories are bulging with goods waiting to be, be delivered. As the head of a fledgling railroad company, you will build and expand your network of rails, invest in better locomotives, and deliver goods. The profits are potentially huge, <laughs> but only for the tycoon who can get there first. So, fairly average when it when it comes to rail style games. That's pretty much kind of what they all have in mind going for them. The object of this particular one is to have the most victory points at the end of the game, and you get the majority of your victory points from delivering goods once you've built your tracks. There are some other ways. First, let's just jump right in and look at the components real quick. <laughs> uh, we've got one game board which is absolutely huge. It's easily three times the size of a traditional game oh, board. Yeah. In fact, you're not going to what you what you should be worried about is whether you have a table big enough to play this damn game on. It, it almost <laughs> maxed out our dining room table, and we have a pretty dang big yeah, table. It, it was healthy. So the game board is a map of the eastern half of the United States. It's divided up into hexes. Some of the hexes have cities in them. The rest all have terrain, whether it's open terrain, rivers, mountains, hills. Then there's an income slash victory point track that runs around the outside. And this I'm going to go ahead and describe right now because it's funky. It's cool, but it's funky. So the victory points go from 1 to 100, but associated with the victory points is your income. So as you increase your victory points, your income changes. 
You notice I didn't say increase because it does increase until you get to 50 victory points. But once you start heading from 50 to 100, your income actually starts to decrease. So that's something you seriously need to take into in mind when you're planning your strategy for this guy. So included is, instead of a truckload, we'll say a trainload of hex-shaped <laughs> track tiles. These are little guys that have straight sections and curved sections of tracks on them that you'll be laying through the course of the game. They're double-sided, right? They're, they're double-sided, um, mostly for terrain differences, and so you can just have any mix that you could possibly need. Um, there's 150 plastic control locomotives that come in, in the player colors, 25 for each player. There's some new city tiles, some western link tiles. Of course, there's 125 wooden goods cubes, and these come in five different colors. There's a little goods cube bag, because every time that you need them in the game, they're just going to be randomly pulled out of this little cloth bag. Stack of paper money. Uh, we didn't use paper money. We used cool little poker, poker chips. chips. Made it much easier. Um, there's stock certificates. Um, engine cards. The engines that you'll have, the locomotives that actually drive your trains, come in eight different levels. You'll start the game with a number one level. Um, there's plastic empty city markers. These are probably the coolest thing that comes with the game, and they serve no other purpose than <laughs> to mark the fact that that space is empty. Just to look cool. Exactly. Even though that does trigger the end of the game, but they are really cool. They have like four different molds. They're really chunky. Water towers yeah. and railroad crossing signs. Yeah, and... they're just really cool. Um, there's some tycoon car tycoon cards that you're going to get at the beginning of the game that will help you get some victory points at the end. And then there's operation cards, which you can purchase in your little action phase, which we'll talk about in a second. So the setup is really actually pretty easy. Once you've got the board laid out, you're going to randomly place goods cubes in each city. Each city has a, um, each city space has a number in it that tells you exactly how many of these cubes you're supposed to put in it. So you can just let one player do that while you're getting the rest of the stuff because there's a lot of cities. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to take a little while. Each player receives that level one engine card that we talked about um, and we'll say we'll tell you what the difference between the levels and the engine cards were in a minute each player gets one of those tycoon cards now this is kept secret and it has a secret goal on it and if you can achieve this goal by the end of the game then there's going to be victory points awarded for that particular goal which is really cool kind of like a bonus basically. yeah exactly um, then you're going to lay out some operation cards, and these are cards that you can actually spend an action on, and they do all kinds of really cool things. The number of these that are laid out is going to vary um, based on the number of people playing, but typically I think there's going to be from 7 to like 15 of the, these cards face up at the side of the board that you're going to have to choose from during your player actions. So, put the, put them close at hand too. Yeah, exactly. We we kind of spent a turn and a half ignoring <laughs> them. Oh, what about those cards? Crap! I forgot <laughs> I could get those. <laughs> and then they are way cool. They do all kinds of awesome stuff. So before we get into a turn, um, I want to go over one concept that I think is really important to understand with this game, and it's also really cool. And that's the stocks and the money. Um, the players start the game with absolutely no money. So at any point in the game when you need money that you don't have, you are going to have to issue shares of stock in your railroad. Each each share of stock is going to net you 5000 bucks, And there's absolutely no limit to the number of stocks that you can issue. Period. Of course, this sounds easy. Whew, I can just take as much money as I want? Well, to the flip side of that, there's a lot of things to take into consideration before you just start issuing truckloads of shares. The first thing is, you can never buy these shares back, ever. Once you issue them, that's it. They're done. At the end of every single turn, you're going to have to pay dividends on 
every single share of stock in the amount of 1000 per share. And then if that's not bad enough, at the end of the game, you're going to lose one victory point for every share that you've issued. So there's a fine line to be walked between issuing shares and winning the game. And trust really me, fine. Yeah, exactly. We had we were our game had people on complete total opposite <laughs> ends of how to do this. <laughs> fiscally conservative and fiscally crazy. <laughs> exactly. So let's take a look at a turn. Each turn is broken down into three phases. There's an auction for the first player phase, there's the player actions phase, and then there's the income and dividends phase. The first phase, which is the auction for the first player phase, is just your typical run-of-the-mill auction. When it comes to you, you can either raise the bid or pass. If you pass, you can't re-enter. Highest bidder becomes the first player. Pretty simple, and there's a lot of times in this game where you where you must be the first player to beat some beat somebody to the city. Funny that both these games start with that yeah, mechanic. That is wacky. One of our listeners knew that. Hmm. Hmm. They're doing connection games on us. <laughs> exactly. So that takes us to phase two, which is the meat of the game. These are the player actions, and each player is going to get three actions, but they're one at a time in turn order. So there are six different things you can do in here, so I'll kind of quickly go through these actions. The first action is build track. Before we do that, I have to explain what the game defines as a link. Um, it's a series of one or more of those track tiles that when laid together, they connect one city to another. So a link can be one tile, or it could be eight, nine, ten tiles. But it's just however many tiles it takes to link one city to another. A line connecting two dots. Bingo. <laughs> Damn, why didn't I think of that? Okay, so the first option you have is to build track. Of course, it's going to cost you money. Variable. It's going to be variable based on the type of terrain you're building over. You can build up to four pieces of track per action or up to one link per action. So if you lay one tile and that creates a link, then you're done and you can't lay the other three. If you're laying multiple pieces of track, then any track that you lay after the first have to be connected to that first one that you laid. So you can't start all these little partial links across the board. You can just extend the line. Exactly. That's all you can do. If you've completed a link, you go ahead and mark it with one of your little control locomotives so everybody knows that that link is in fact yours. If at the end of your three actions you have any incomplete links out on the board, they're just wiped off the board as if they were never there. Painful. <laughs> so, so plan plan ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was um, the first, first action you can do is building track. You can upgrade your engine. Like you said, you start the beginning of the game with a level one engine. The level of your engine equals the number of links that you can deliver a goods cube. So at the beginning, you can just deliver a cube across one link. If you upgrade to a level five eventually, now you can deliver that goods cube's five links. So that's pretty cool. Um, the cost of doing this is shown on the engine cards, ranging anywhere from like five to 20,000 for you to actually get up to the eight. So the third action you can do is deliver a goods cube. This is very popular because it's one of the only ways to earn those victory points and in turn get income. So the very first thing we have to talk about is the cities on the board are of a certain color. So there's red cities, blue cities, yellow cities, purple cities. The goods cubes are also of these same colors. So you have to, to deliver a goods cube, it has to go to a city that's the same color as that cube itself. So if you want to deliver a yellow one, you can only deliver it to a yellow city. Pretty simple. There's only, you can pretty much take any route that you can possibly come up with, with a couple exceptions. It can't pass through the same city twice, and it can't go over the same link twice. Other than that, you can do whatever you want. 
Um, if Once you make your delivery, you, re, you return the cube to the bag, and now you score for it. The score is going to be one victory point for each link that that cube crossed during its delivery. And who's going to earn those points is who controlled those links that it went over. So obviously you'd like yourself to earn all of them, but sometimes you don't always have that choice, and you're going to have to give some victory points to your opponents by delivering over their particular portions of that you know track so you can use your opponent's tracks in other words yes, but definitely. you're gonna have to pay them for the use of their tracks. exactly so. and it's <laughs> it's very painful to have to do that too yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that was your third option your fourth option is to um, urbanize now remember we said the cities are of a certain color well there's actually a lot of cities that aren't a color they're just gray you can actually pay to make them a color so you'll be able to deliver the stuff that you want and you'll get to choose this color so you can take a look at the tracks you've laid the goods that you can deliver and go you know what this really needs to be purple so mm-hmm. i can deliver those guys so that's a great action um operation cards we talked about those those are the ones that set face up over at the side of the board you can spend one of your actions to collect one of these cards and they do a myriad of different cool things for you throughout the game definitely worth having as part of your strategy oh yeah and then the final thing that you can do is create a western link i'm not going to go into great detail about this it costs like thirty thousand and it's mainly a strategy for a player who has some connections to chicago um, it allows basically new goods an influx of new goods to reappear at chicago to be delivered um, out around the board exactly so it's really cool in certain situations so then we get to the final phase of the game and that's the or the of each turn and that's the income and the dividends pretty simple you look at your victory point track and on that where you're at it'll tell you what your income is you'll collect that once you've collected you have to pay those darn dividends one thousand for each share and if you're like me you might have to buy (laughs) issue more (laughs) shares just to pay the dividends on the shares that you already had but anyway so you'll do that and then at this point any incomplete links are wiped off the board and you get to turn one more of those operator or operation cards face up the game plays on like this until X number of spaces are empty. Once the goods have been depleted from a city, you put one of those empty city markers in it. And based on the number of players, I think in ours it was 12, 12 yeah. or something like that, when there's 12 of those markers out, you finish the current turn, play one additional turn, and the game is over. Who has the most victory points wins. It's actually very streamlined. It's so big, it looks daunting, mm-hmm. but but it was really cool. I'll let you take over and let them know what you thought. I thought the most interesting thing I thought about the game was that it's really a lot more about the economics than it is the, <laughs> the trains and the other Absolutely. stuff. Understanding how much you can afford to put yourself in the hole uh, with the stocks to be able to do what you want to do on the next turn, you know, having a plan... Uh, whether it's you know going way into debt to try to be really ambitious or whether it's to try to be really measured and take as few as possible. Either way, there's the whole money management so that you have just enough money to do what you want to do so that you're not having to buy, buy right. more stocks just to pay <laughs> off the stock dividends that you already have. But to me, a strength of the game is that we were able to take um, totally different strategies like that. Dave was the, you know, go into debt up to his eyeballs from the beginning, and I think I finished with only six shares yeah. of stock. Six shares to my 27 Seven, or 28, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and we ended up basically one point away from, basically yeah. tied. If I had gotten the bonus, which Francie tied me on my <laughs> bonus thing, we would have ended up tied so that we you can take totally different strategies like exactly. that and end up being really competitive. To me, that's the sign of a really strong game design. Absolutely. That, um, and I do like your point that I think that the, the lane of the rails and creating the links is the ends to the mean means of basically the wealth, the money, the income you know, versus the victory points. It's just... It's really cool. I haven't played anything like this, but I I'm not a rail. Yeah, know, maybe a lot of them are like that, but yeah, I mean, uh, in concept, yeah, but I think in execution that this one it emphasizes the money more so than in other oh, okay. games, and because it's more generic. In that, you know, other games there would be an extra added layer of complexity to, you know, the cubes themselves. Although color wise, they might represent, you know, different kinds of cubes. That does uh, different kinds of goods. Basically, all you're looking at is color of cube and color of dot. And just color, you know, uh, cubes go to dots, and that's all there is. There's no, oh, I'm going to get, I have to look at the price of grain and try to find a city that, you know, has the high. There's none of that. It's just find the black cube, get it to the the black dot as fast as you can and in, in as long a route as you can. That's exactly. the other interesting thing. I went for the short hop, little deliver lots of goods to little spaces and Dave was the spread out all over the board um, on this one especially too. But uh, and again, it accommodated both those strategies very nicely, I thought. Absolutely. And it was the rule book. At first, when I opened the uh, box, I'm like, oh, this looks fairly daunting. But it was the exact opposite of Democker. Yeah. In that by the time you take the pictures out and the, the front page and back page, I think you might have four pages, maybe mm-hmm. five pages of rules. Yeah. So it's um, pretty easy to learn. That, that yeah, that was the other thing is by the turns go really quickly too. Yeah, you know that they you're gonna have multiple multiple turns, but because these actions are very simple to understand, laying the track or upgrading things or getting the cards, there's a momentum to each turn that they they really fly by a lot faster than than a traditional rail game might even have right. going for it too. Exactly, I would I would definitely recommend laying out the sixty dollars for this guy. It seems a little steep, but it's it's definitely got the goober in it. And it's got replayability with a wide crowd of people. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be just relegated to playing this with your geek, you know, yeah. total game geeky friends. This is going to be able to spread out to some of those non-gamer types. Well, I know people. you were surprised. You sent it out to your brother and sister in California. Right. And you thought, well, this one might not ever get off the shelf. And they, what, they play it all the time. It's like their most popular game. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Which, wow. I would think, I mean, as a gateway game, I would think maybe Ticket to Ride or Transamerica would be the first step. But this would be a ne- absolutely the next oh, yeah. step up because it's not that much more complicated than either of those. Um, but there is a little bit more going on right. than, than either of those Just with the economic. Portion thrown in, you know, but yeah, this is great. Gateway Plus. Yeah. The next, after you've done a gateway, step up to this bad boy. <laughs> You're through the threshold, but the door could still hit you in the butt. <laughs> exactly. So that was the second game off the list. Once again, recommended by our listeners. Thank you very much because I'm glad we played it because it was very cool. Railroad Tycoon, great game. Backshelf Spotlight. These games need some love and we're going to give it to them. The Backshelf Spotlight shines on those games that may have slipped past your attention. Classic games, rare games, obscure games that you may not know about, but you should. If you're looking to branch out and try something new, this would be a good place to start. So the mystery connection from episode 27 was between the Omega Virus and the Magnificent Race. And the mystery connection... 
drum roll, please, <laughs> was... I thought for sure everybody would get this because Stephen and I purposely omitted very <laughs> important details. And we did actually get three winners. The connection was that both games have a game-driven character that can actually win the game, <laughs> which is obviously the evil virus in one case and dastardly Dan in the other case. So we had three listeners that yeah. jumped in on this. I thought we'd have more, but... <laughs> so the three correct guessers were Simon Wilcock from the UK, Tim Rogers from Greenville, South Carolina, and Traver Travis Sansala in Rolling Stone, Minnesota. So we've got the, the dice off here to win the Spiel dice. Dave's got the dice in his hand here. Let's see who's going to be the winner. Let's see... Looks like Tim Rogers in Greenville, South Carolina. Congratulations, Tim. We'll be sending you your Spiel dice very soon. We'll be in contact to get your address. Cool. Congratulations. <laughs> so remember, here's a little tweak with the back shelf from now on. Um, we're still doing the, the connection game, just as always, but instead of sending us the email... Um, we're going to have you go to the website, which is thespiel.net, log on to the forums, and go to the Backshelf Spotlight forum, and there'll be a little you know, sub-forum in there for each of the different episodes, and you can put your guesses there. That way everybody else can see your guesses and might be able to brainstorm, and you can put all your heads together and, and <laughs> plot against us. Um, there, so um, we're yeah. we're even going to make it easy on them for this particular connection, right? The new absolutely, one. absolutely. So just to kind of get you in the groove here, um, the, there's not really going to be a connection. This is going to be kind of like we did this with the cheap ass games right. before, because this was a listener suggested um, this idea for the back shelf, and I thought it was an excellent one, and one I'm sure we'll return to because we we won't even come close to covering <laughs> right. all of them. So a listener, this is from a while back, I think like January or late wow. December. Uh, Pete Marlowe wrote in with the idea of covering pub-style games, dexterity pub kind of games that cool. you play in a t typical like English pub. Right. Um, so we've picked two that are certainly favorites or ones that we think you should know about because that's the whole point of the Back Shelf <laughs> Spotlight here. So we're going to cover those, and we'll return to those probably in future Back Shelves because there are just so many really interesting ones to talk about. But the catch is, there's not going to be... The connection is that they're pub games. We're going to give that away right now. But what we want you to do is go to the forums and tell us what your favorite pub game is. And that will enter you in the contest to get, get the ball rolling here. We want to get you used to this new way of doing it. Go to the forum... Um, we'll have you know the pub game forum for episode 28, and you put down whatever you think your favorite pub game is. That'll enter you into the contest, and easiest way you're going to win Spiel Dice, you know, exactly. in, in a, quite a while here. So I think we're we're kind of running down on these first edition Spiel Dice, aren't we? I think so. So if you want some of these <laughs> collectors, really <items>. collectors <laughs> first edition guys, you better get in. I have to get that second printing out pretty soon <laughs> here. <laughs> so on with the back shelf. So um, my game for back shelf is Skittles. Cool. Uh, Skittles or nine pins is actually a forerunner of ten pin bowling and has long been played in the inns and pubs of England. In general, players are going to take turns throwing wooden balls down a lane at the end of which are several wooden Skittles or pins in an attempt to knock them over. The actual origin of the game is a little cloudy, but it's clear that there were German monks playing a version of the game in the third century called Kegel. Wow. And later, there are even drawings in France in the 14th century depicting people playing the game in tapestries and paintings and things, which is really interesting. Cool. In England, though, it's where it's really, really, you know, sort of had its heyday. There are many regional variations of the game across England, and every little town has their own little way of playing that use different size and shape of skittles, balls, alley lengths, and rules. The greatest thing, I think, is they all have different shaped uh, pins, oh, the, the skittles, pins? Ah. and the four most popular are the whales or Glamorgan style, Gloucester, 
Bristol or Devon, and they each have their own unique style of of, of skittle or pin cool. that they'll play with. The <laughs> other thing I think is funny is they don't always use balls. They'll use uh, what they call cheeses, which are like wooden round discs, so like a big disc of oh, cheese. Oh, okay. okay. That's <laughs> they, great. And they call them cheeses, which I think is That's really great. funny. Um, Western Country Skittles is the most popular and basic version. There are nine skittles that are arranged in a three-by-three three square um, the alley's 24 feet long, and if all the pins are knocked down, they're resets, and so that on one turn you could score as many as 27. Oh, so you okay. get three rolls. Um, as space became a premium, pub owners started to miniaturize the game and brought it indoors, making Skittles tables and lanes, bowling mm. lanes, you can see where this is headed, <laughs> in one way that's pretty obvious, but the other way is this table version of Skittles. The table game replaces the alley with a really interesting mechanism. So instead of rolling the ball down the alley, there's a ball tied to a rope and suspended from a pole. And instead of rolling the ball towards the pins, you swing the ball out over the pins, trying to knock as many down as you want, as you can on your turn. It's really fun. Do you, do you remember that goofy 70s commercial with a game that they put out here in this country where uh, you swung the ball into the bowling pins? No, totally don't remember. I don't remember the name of the game, but... I remember the commercial. So oh, really? It was so 70s. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. So the only other one to cover here is there's a game called Top Toffle. That's another variant that was invented in France and the Netherlands in the 19th century, but is actually, when you think of Skittles in America, this might be the version of Skittles you're thinking, because you're uh, like thinking, what the hell is he talking that, right. about up to this point? Now, this version of Skittles features a box with many little chambers. Now, the pins are placed inside the chambers, and instead of a ball, you use a wind-up top on a string. You wind up the top, and then you set it loose in the box, and the pin goes bop, 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 bop around this little box, and you hope that it goes through the little archways and into these chambers and knocks down as many pins as you can. This, you know, In America, that could be known as Skittles as well. In Europe, right. you probably would know it as Top Toffle, but you can see it's kind of a variant of it. I think it's cool to see how this one very basic roll ball at sticks <laughs> has sort of exploded right. and evolved into these totally different things that all kind of have their progenitor in Skittles. They're all That's really fun games. Um, the other thing That's I thought was cool. funny is in pub, you know, you find little Skittles things in pubs, but in here, bowling is so popular that you have the bowling alley with the bar attached now that the game is sort of almost trumped. Not that you can't imagine bowling without the beer. The pub as well. is inside the game versus <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> vice versa. That's very cool. <laughs> so there's Skittles. First first game in the back shelf spotlight. Cool. The game I picked is a really cool little game. Fairly basic, but it's a game called Shove Haypenny. And the interesting thing is this game probably came about in taverns somewhere around the 15th century. It wasn't called Shove Haypenny then because... <laughs> The, the neat thing about this game is the name of it. The name has changed so many times based on the coin that you're using in the game. Obviously, in Shove Haypenny, you're using half pennies. And way back when, they might use groats or thrifts or whatever was the common coin of the time. So the one that we're looking at is particularly Shove Haypenny, and it didn't surface till around the middle of the 1800s, something like that. It's got a really cool-looking little wooden board, and it, it could be slate, but most often it's a wooden board, and you're going to be trying to shove this halfpenny up the board and have it land in between these little lines. The board is shaped kind of like a tombstone, if you, if you want to say that. <laughs> it's like a rectangle with one end rounded on it, and there are ten lines in the center of this. There's kind of a launch area where you're actually going to put your penny. It's really cool. The penny hangs off the board just a little bit. And then you're going to try and shove or push the penny forward so that it lands exactly in between two of these lines. And 
the object of the whole entire game, believe it or not, is to get three of your pennies in each of these nine spaces, which I can't imagine even getting it in one, <laughs> let alone three. Now, after, after a few pints of Guinness, yeah, in yeah, especially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you get it exactly in between the lines, it's called in bed. Because each of the spaces in between the lines is called a bed. That's great. Now, some of the really fancy boards, this is so ultra cool, it's not even funny. The lines, instead of just being slightly engraved, they are actually grooves, and a thin piece of metal fits down inside of it. So that if there's any question in your mind whatsoever, whether oh, that halfpenny is touching the line, it's um, the piece of metal is hinged on one end. So you can lift it out of the thing, <laughs> and if obviously if the coin moves at all, then <laughs> it was touching the line. So that's super cool, and there's some terms that go along with this that, <laughs> that are wonderful. There's a term called tickle. Which is if you've got one of your hay pennies just barely touching a line, it's you want to use one of your other ones oh. to go up and tickle it, just so it and put it in bed. <laughs> so I, I think that's cool. Then there's one that's derogatory called scuds. When you're hoping that somebody will just have a horrible turn and not be able to score at all, you just use the word the term scuds. And then there's another term thick. You know, if it's touching the line, oh. it's just a little thick. <laughs> you know, but this is this is really cool. There's tons of just like Steven Skittles, depending upon where you go, there's tons of variations on this. Everybody's using whatever coins. The other thing that I thought is interesting is in any shuffleboard-ish type of game, they're waxing these boards up. They're getting oh, these right, things right. as slippery as they possibly can. And they actually are smoothing out one side of the coin. Oh, so and it slides. So more. it's really slippery. But there's a little bit of question as to which side you should actually, because some, some people think that you should That's go awesome. ahead and smooth the head out so you can see, on the flip side, the tail and the date of the coin. Mm. Other people, certain countries don't allow you to deface the mm. monarch, the picture of the ruling oh, right, monarch. Right. Yeah, so well, yeah, you that's... have to do the backside. <laughs> so that's just super cool. <laughs> but So I, I picked a Shove Hay Penny, and I would love to get my hands on one of these. Of course, I think in this country we have just like Push Penny because we're just using plain old pennies and we're pushing them. But did I tell you? I can't remember. I don't think I said how you push these things. No, I don't you think You can use any part of your hand, but most commonly use the heel yeah. of your hand. I can't imagine having enough control. <laughs> like imagine a half penny hanging over like an eighth of an inch and just tapping it with the heel of your hand and being able to control how far it moves up. Well, you can totally see how this game got invented. Two guys who had five pints of Guinness <laughs> at the thinking. bar carving little lines into the bar and yeah. saying, yeah, but you can get that penny over the line before I Exactly, can. but you can't use your fingers. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy, but... Yeah, pub games are so cool. We, we could go on. Just scratch the surface forever. So thanks to Pete Marlowe again yes, for very this much. idea because we'll we'll definitely return to it because there's there's lots more that we can <laughs> we can talk about. <laughs> so remember, instead of sending it to the normal uh, our emails, log into the website thespiel.net. Go to the forums, the Backshelf Spotlight forums. Give us your favorite pub game, and you'll be entered in the contest for a set of spiffy spiel dice. Truckloads of Goober. What is Goober, you ask? While sages and scholars may debate its subtle nuances, Dave defines Goober as either a game with a ton of quality components or a game with really unique components. Now, we're not saying that you should always judge a book by its cover, but the stuff, the Goober in a game, can be a factor in having fun. Great Goober can make an otherwise average game excellent. 
Great Goober can make an already great game sublime. Let's see what the Goobermeisters have for us this week. So, the Truckloads of Goober suggestion was submitted by David Siskin in Playa del Rey, California. Um, he actually sent pictures. Uh, how nice is that? It did Sweet. part of my work for me. So, a lot <laughs> of the pictures you're seeing are, are courtesy of David, too, for um, the game Fire and Axe. Uh, it came out in 2004. Steve and Phil Kendall are the designers. Uh, Asmodee Editions is the publisher. Three to five players. Plays in about 90 minutes. Um, you can find it online, good deal, for around $33, $32.50, um, if you look cool. at all the different online sources for the game. Um, it's actually a remake of a game called Viking Fury by the Ragnar Brothers, uh, um, with some, <laughs> awesome. some tweaks and, and additions as well. So Fire and Axe invites you to play the role of Vikings when they were scouring the seas and rivers of Europe for plunder and land between the years 750 and 1020 A.D., each of your journeys begins in Scandinavia, where the Vikings and the goods are embarked, uh, where, vi- where <laughs> goods are embarked, and where the runes are deciphered. During the voyage, you will trade with the local populations, you will plunder their treasures, or you will establish colonies. Uh, the speed with which you pile up wealth and fame will determine your influence upon the whole of the Middle Ages. Um, cool. So the cool thing is about this game, I think, is that you need to fight, settle, and trade in this game. You can't do just one to the exclusion of all the others. And there's a heavy emphasis on interaction. So there's the requisite amount of plotting and backstabbing that cool. are par for the course. Yeah, baby. You know, it's a Viking <laughs> conquest game. What would it be? Now, we're not going to go into any more detail about the actual game than that because this is about the goober. So here's what comes with Lay this, it on me, this baby. game. So you get a nice, big, full-color game board of medieval Europe done kind of as though it were an old map of medieval map of Europe, which oh. is really cool. Um, 33 rune cards, 27 saga cards, five longboat tiles, 33 goods tokens, 15 treasure tiles, 67 gold coins, five Drakkar figures, 75 crewmen, three large town figures, 12 small town figures, a bunch of other like bookkeeping counters, and three dice. Wow. And the the figures are nicely well sculpted. They're all sort of, you know, Viking era in nice cool. bright colors, so it's easy to tell the different people's units apart. Um, David uh, wrote in and said he was a big fan of the old Viking Fury game, uh-huh. and he had kind of thought, well, Fire, Fire and Axe looked cool, but the, when he realized that Fire and Axe was actually a reprint and kind of a reimagining of the old Viking Fury, he was like, <laughs> immediately went to the must-have <laughs> list, and he was like, you must go out and order this right now. <laughs> so he gave gives it a, a big enthusiastic uh, thumbs up from his point of view and just from the, from the, the goober, goober alone yeah. um, you should check out Fire and Axe The Game Sommelier or Right Game Right Crowd Like matching the perfect vintage with a delicious meal The Game Sommelier finds the right game for any crowd age experience or personality Each week one of us must pick five games to meet a fiendish challenge. Each week, one of us must earn the right, the honor, to be called the Game Sommelier. So, Dave, your challenge was a double-barreled challenge from two different listeners that I put together into one mega challenge. So the challengers were uh, Cameron Iwan in Douglas, Nebraska, and Ian Mackey. And your challenge from them was to find five games for a lost, the television show, Lost Party, 
Um, but each of the games would have to suit or evoke some aspect of one of the characters from the show. What do you got for me? Cool. Well, that was particularly evil. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> um, I kind of broke this down into two. First of all, I kind of picked my own little five games that you don't have to do a thumbs up or thumbs down. I just thought it would be fun to pick five games that were all set on islands. And I went one step further, five games that have the word island in the title. <laughs> so just, this is sort of a bonus. Yeah, this is just kind of a bonus thing. I thought it'd be fun to do <laughs> islands. So the first one I picked was Fireball Island. Classic game from, I believe, the 80s where you've got this god on top of a mountain spitting down these flaming fireballs at people and it's knocking them off bridges as they're trying to escape off this island. Very cool. Um, Runebound, Island of Dread. Runebound is such a cool little game, character building game, and this particular expansion has it set on an island. It's fun. A little game that you and you and I tried out called Easter Island by oh, yeah. Twilight Creations, kind of like a little abstract strategy thing set on obviously Easter Island. You've got Pirates of the Mysterious Islands, which is an expansion of the um, the Crimson, the little collectors, the collectible um, pirate game. Pirates of the Spanish Main. Oh, Pirates of the Spanish Main. That's what I meant exactly, <laughs> and that's. An, an island thing that's really cool. And then, if you're going to talk about islands, you can't not play Kung Fu Samurai on Giant Robot Island. <laughs> of course. So if you're just wanting some goofy, fun things set on islands, based on islands, I think this would be a great list. Artifacts from the future. Item, one iPod. Owner, one Zephram Cochran. Playlist. Name that game. Okay, now to the th the thumbage picks. So <laughs> I was here, ready. Here's here's the games that I think should be associated with one or more of the characters from the TV show. We'll start off with Hurley. He's kind of one of my favorite one of my favorite characters, dude. Exactly. <laughs> one thing that we know about Hurley is he obviously likes to eat. He's a rather large guy, so I picked a game that's kind of centered around food, specifically breakfast, and the game is King's Breakfast. Um, the reason why I thought this would be cool is, I, personally, I would remake the game and make my own cards with all, all the Dharma Initiative food. Oh, yes. And yes. so I would play the game and just retheme <laughs> it to this because it is a fun little card game. I also picked Breakfast because Hurley's kind of favorite buddy on the island is Charlie, and Charlie knows a lot about breakfast, too. Second breakfast, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so, That's clever. I like so, it. So I would pick King's Breakfast for those guys. Thumbs up. Easy thumbs up. Okay. Now, Kate. Kate, class, great character on the show. She has some strange connection to a horse. that we She's seen visions of horses on the island before. And as we know, in her life off the island, she spent all that time running away from the law. So horses and running... Leads me to Royal Turf. <laughs> I thought that's where you were going to go. <laughs> and as, as usual, I would retheme this game also and change the horses to the characters trying to escape off, off the <laughs> island instead of just racing around the track. I, th I thought that'd be a blast. Yep, that's good. I like that too. Okay, thumbs up. Okay, now this one's kind of wacky. Saeed? <laughs> okay. Okay, one of the worst games I've ever played in my life is San Yemeniano. 
<laughs> I think it would be a complete torture to have to play this game again. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> so I associate that with Saeed and his past torturing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I told you I'm just having fun with I'm this. I'm going thumbs down on that one because <laughs> I don't want to play that game again exactly, either. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I don't think you should force well, people to That's play. why I picked six because <laughs> I don't want them to have to play that one. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, move on to Sawyer. Okay. Sawyer, great character. I think probably my favorite character on the show. What I picked for him to play is Dragon's Gold because Sawyer likes to hoard things. And he likes to trade him for stuff and make people wheel and deal for the stuff, that, whether it be for medications to um, girly magazines to guns. To, to guns to what have you. And in Dragon's Gold, you're actually defeating dragons, and then the meat of the game is trying to figure out how to divide up all this stuff. And you can't just, oh, you take this and you take this. You all have to make agreements, and everybody wants to be greedy and just hoard their stuff. So I thought that was kind of a cool aspect that's, of that's Sawyer. That's excellent. Yeah, that totally fits with his his greedy hoarding nature. I like that. Thumbs up. Cool. So moving on to Locke. I was a, I was hoping you'd put him in there. <laughs> so this is this is kind of freaky. When they first landed on the island, the first person that they turned to to help them hunt and gather food. <laughs> <laughs> I can was, feel was, the brain waves coming towards me. Was Locke. So I would recommend Carcassonne Hunters and Gatherers. <laughs> and pretty much that's all I need to say. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I, there aren't any boar tokens in right, Hunters yeah. and Gatherers. You know what you I was, get bonus credit for that. <laughs> exactly. Now, for the serious um, Lost Geeks out there, I could not remember what board game Locke was playing on his lunch hour in one of the earlier episodes. He was actually, when he was working at the cardboard factory, yeah. he was on his lunch hour, and he was playing a board game. He also, when he's working at the, the department store, he's stacking, I think, copies of like the game of Life or right. Mousetrap or and something he, And he plays like backgammon on the island. With Walt, But yes. that one lunch hour thing, somebody sent us an email and remind yeah, me what right. that game I've was. I've forgotten, too. I can't think of that either. But Thumbs up. Yeah, cool, that's, cool. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good and one. And this moves us to my final pick, and that's for Jack. Couldn't leave good old Jack out. Now, as we know, Jack should have died. How many times? <laughs> I mean, he should have been shot. He should have been poisoned. He should have been everything. But he's still alive. So I would pick Kill Dr. Lucky. Because <laughs> he is a doctor, and he's the luckiest person that I know. It would be so hilarious to make a Dr. Lucky figure, but make it be Jack. And have all the other little figures be the others. Mm -hmm. As they're chasing him around the <laughs> island, trying to find him and killing him, kill him off with... You can figure out all the weapons that you could associate, you know. Yeah. I just think that'd be a blast. <laughs> I like but, the inversion of it of using right. the others. You know, normally it's them, you know. <laughs> right, exactly. That's that's cool. So there's my five picks. Kinda six, kinda zany, but I just wanted to have fun <laughs> well, with it. Well those this. are good. I like those. Those all do a good job of evoking some aspect of the character and I would I would I would totally round file the Saeed one just because I don't want to play that game <laughs> yeah, either. But exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll we'll see if uh, Cameron and Ian uh, we'll write in. Feel in. free to to send us mail or to to post something to the forums with your response because we'd be interested exactly. to know what. And you I also think. picked those games because they're a well-rounded, crazy mix hmm. of fun stuff that I think would be cool at a party. That's cool. So you ready for your challenge? I think so. Well, obviously it has to be from a listener since we're still in the listener episode. Bring it on. So this is sent in by Andy Miner of Madison, Wisconsin. And he is trying to put together a little group to play card and board games over lunch at work. 
So his challenge is to find five games that can be enjoyed over lunch hour at work by a pretty wide variety of players. Um, they're not going to play all five games, so games that they can play maybe one or two games over the course of an hour, and they need to be kind of light as far as the components and the setup go, because you don't want to spend most of your lunch hour just setting the game up. Um, and it's going to actually take place in the public cafeteria. So nothing like Snorta or anything where you're yelling out <laughs> things that may draw unnecessary attention to you. Some things that he's doing is like Euchre and Quiddler and stuff like that. But That's I think you can I think you can really round out oh, yeah. his lunch hour with some really cool, you know, beer and pretzels or maybe maybe even a step up from that. Absolutely. So. I can I can hook you up. Sweet. Mailbag. It's time for you to let us know what you think. Comments, questions, criticisms. Let us have it. So we have some nicknames to award. Thank you very much. We, we do this with all the people who donate to the Spiel. We give you a game theme nickname, and we've got three, got three of those donors bad boys to week. hand out. Great. Thanks for your support and valuing what we do. So um, right off the bat, we've we, got... We want to thank the Dread Pirate Weaver. Yes, Mark, that means you. <laughs> thank you very much for your awesome donation. <laughs> Our friend Mark in Howard, Pennsylvania, if you remember episodes 8 and 9 of The Spiel, came from his his humble abode. Uh, exactly. He sent us a donation. Thanks, Mark. Uh, we have Patrick Scallywag Stromer in Stockholm, Sweden. So thank you very much, Patrick. We absolutely appreciate your donation. And last, we have a donation from John Manowar Edwards in Riva, Maryland. Thank you very much, John. So remember, if you donate to the Spiel, there are donate buttons there. You get a special game theme nickname thought up by us, and we'll announce it on the show, and we put you on our little uh, list of donor honor list on the, the website. So thanks. Uh, on with other business here. We've got the poll results from last week's poll. We have uh, the question was, what's your favorite historical period or genre in a game? And the winner, by a pretty wide margin, right. was actually medieval, medieval Europe. Europe. So we got a bunch of medievalists yeah. on our hand. Following close behind that was ancient Greece and Rome and then everybody else was kind of split up. I was nice to see that there wasn't a single category without at least a right, few votes all. in it. So uh, nice to see that our Spiel listeners are kind of well-rounded. Yeah, exactly. you know, they like all kinds of history, but they seem to gravitate towards the the knights and the castles <laughs> I, i'd go with that yeah that's that's a hard one to so obviously with one poll leaving we've got a new one coming in mm -hmm. and the new poll that we're going to put up is um, basically favorite classic card games what are yours is it euchre bridge cribbage canasta hearts pinochle go fish scopa poker or maybe it's rummy huge list to choose from i Probably have a couple of my favorites in there, but yeah. <laughs> but but let us know. Get on and vote, and go I to thespiel.net. I know there's a lot of people that don't even have a chance to play these classics a lot of times, so I'm definitely interested to find out what people's favorites are. <laughs> so our special contribution to the mailbag this week comes from Tom Vassell of the Dice Tower, our buddy over there. Um, in episode 27, if you remember, Dave was on the hot seat with a challenge from Tom, and just due to time constraints we couldn't get his response in the last episode so we've got it for this one so um we're just going to roll tape on that and let you listen to tom's response right now hey guys this is tom vassal from the dice tower and i i guess this is a, a year for you now recording the spiel and i've listened to most of them and i wanted to say a hearty congratulations on having the second best podcast gaming podcast on the internet you guys do a wonderful job and we're certainly glad that you came on the show a couple episodes ago and now I'm glad to be back here. Now, 
Let's talk about this challenge that you guys did for me. What I wanted was five games that were um, indicative that, that were about the Renaissance period or about trading over some kind of ocean type thing, and that were fun because of the theme, not the mechanics. Because there are literally tons of these games, and usually we talk about how the theme is pasted on, blah, blah, blah. And so you gave your list. Now, before we go into this, I'd like to point out that your lists are five, and our lists are ten. And I just think that's kind of a cop-out, because five is usually pretty easy. It's getting those last five that's pretty hard. But all right, let's see. Let's look at your list. First of all, the absolute best game on your list was the one you guys thought was shouldn't be there. Serenesima is one that I would gladly agree with, hands down. Uh, I think it's great because of the theme. I like the fact that you can have pirates and you can trade and it just you have monopolies on goods. It really feels like a trading game. This is how themes should be integrated into a game. Serenesma is by far the best choice on your list, uh, at least in my opinion. Now, I can't really talk about Age of Renaissance because I have not played that, so that may be a good game too, and I can't really look at that one, although you have me somewhat interested. The Prince... Uh, I haven't played that one either, but the reason I haven't played it is because it's gotten just horribly low ratings straight across the board. People just really ripping it up. It's Richard Berg's least rated game, or worst rated game on Board Game Geek. The highest rating it has from anybody is an 8. I don't know, guys. First of all, I'm not a big fan of Richard Berg. He's, his games are usually just too much for me, and I don't know. So maybe, maybe I'll play it sometime, and maybe it's full of theme, but... From the comments I've read, it doesn't look like it's full of game. But again, I can't really talk about that one because I haven't played it much. Machiavelli. <sighs> I don't know if I would include this one um, on the list only because if it's fun, and I'm going to say that it's not, it's because of the diplomatic factors and it really doesn't matter what setting it's done in. It's just another uh, tired retread of the diplomacy um, mechanics, and I hate the, the diplomatic the, the diplomacy. I mean, I, I just despise it because of the backstabbing and stuff, and Machiavelli only makes it worse. Is it true to the theme of Machiavelli? Yeah, but I'm going to argue it doesn't even fit the, the theme of my list. We were talking about trading in the Renaissance area. This is more about diplomacy. So I don't think that one counts. Then the last one is one that certainly is the highest critically acclaimed, and that would be Traders of Genoa. And I really think Traders of Genoa is a is a decent game. I'm not real fond of it, but to say that it's fun because of the theme, that's way off. It's fun because of trading, but come on. What we're doing is we're trading little pink cubes for little white cubes and, and moving around and trying to get cards, and the theme is just not there. That tower that moves around and you put it down, what does it have to do with anything? What does that even mean? Um, I mean, you're moving from building to building, and, and there's a lot of negotiation, but I'm just not catching the theme there. It's, I mean... Okay, you can argue that the theme is trading, and that's right, you're trading, but trading in the Renaissance, trading future space products, it would all be the same thing. And so, as highly acclaimed as Traders of Genoa is, I'm going to say that it doesn't count. So, I'll give you Serenesma, hands down, great one. Uh, the Prince and Age of Renaissance, I don't know, but I can't give you Traders of Genoa Machiavelli. Of course, who am I to say? No one ever agrees with my list, so, you know, there you go. But I do enjoy these. I look forward to giving you guys another challenge. I have an idea, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that in the future. So, and we'd like to have you guys back in the Dice Tower. This is a great show, and I hope that uh, people keep tuning in each and every other week. So 
We'll see you guys later. Tom Vassell from the Dice Tower signing out. So there you have it. A nice response from right. from Tom. What, what do you think there, Dave? Well, first of all, I want to thank Tom for you know actually sending sending his response and giving me a thumb. I think that's about all he gave me was think, a single thumb. And, he gave you two, I think. I would think there was some sideways ones yeah. there, you know. <laughs> But um, thank you. Regardless, I think this just goes to prove that every gamer is kind of unto himself on an opinion about games. So we kind of are going to agree to disagree on on those. I think I remember that his original thought was that this was completely impossible. Doesn't sound impossible. So so I'm thrilled to death that, you know, from the mouth of impossible, I got at least a thumb. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so that's pretty cool. I, I would think a couple other ones on there rate um, better than a sideways thumb, but or at least give them a shot. I mean, we gave you we gave you ample reason to want to try the Prince. I think in in episode twenty seven, as a matter of fact, right? You know, don't ratings aren't all they're cracked up to be. You know, give give it a shot first before you go uh, crossing it off your list unnecessarily. You might pass by a, a game or two that you might otherwise enjoy if you just say, oh well. I looked at that and said the rating was bad, so you just right. assume that it's bad. You know, give give it a shot. Exactly. It's so. Thanks again, Tom. Great. Hopefully, if uh, if luck has it, maybe we'll actually uh, be able to get together here in a few months. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fun. So, thanks again, Tom. We totally appreciate it, and uh, hopefully, we'll we'll see you at Origins. We hope exactly to, in just a few months. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that takes us to some listener emails. We're going to try and squeak one in here because, once again, we're running long, and we want to at least get to one of your emails. So Jake, I think it's DeToro, wrote in about something about the collector's corner. He said whenever he transports his games from place to place, he usually um, puts them in a bag or container spined, and he has a problem with the lid you know, kind of wanting to open a little bit and the contents obviously scattering all over. So he wanted to know, you know, what the heck do I do to keep this from happening? Well, we obviously know that I do crazy, insane stuff. But first of all, I just don't spine them. When I take them, I purposely lay them down flat and carry them that way. If I do have to spine them, I just make sure that the container or bag that I'm carrying has enough other stuff in it that it's it's squishing it together and it's secure. And then I've gone really insane a few times. And if I know that... I'm traveling, you know, someplace where I know all the components are going to fall over. Holy crap. I just don't even take the box. I just take my little plastic baggies, the board, heave it all in a little bag and take it with me. I think you and I have done this a lot because we found out that when we travel, we don't even take our boxes. We'll just put like 10 games. Or take one box and put all 10 games in one box. Yeah, yeah, we'll just just take the insert out, load that one box up with components of like 10 games. And we're good to go. Yeah, my poor little box of, like, Duel, I think, has just been beaten to <laughs> exactly. hell because of that. <laughs> That's kind of a little extreme, maybe, just to go through the trouble to transport one game from place to place. Um, but the worst thing is to show up there, open the box, and, oh, my God. I'm not a big fan of those. You know, Flying Buffalo makes those box rubber bands to put around games. <sighs> yeah, and I would don't. I would steer you away from those. Yeah, they sell them every Gen Con, and it just yeah. seems... Stay away. <laughs> the same reason we don't like uh, rubber bands around cards, I would Stay right. away from those. It seems like a good idea, but I think that in long term, you'll end up ruining your box. <laughs> exactly. So thanks for writing in, Jake. Hopefully that helps out a little bit. And <laughs> anybody has any other questions about game storage or stuff, look forward. S- send them in. <laughs> yeah, look forward to more uh, Collector's Corners coming up here. We're going to have that coming back in a few it's, episodes. Yeah, about time. <laughs> so 
congratulations to you, the listeners, because you, you guys you put earned, together one heck of a show. You earned a good. You, you're good programmers. You put us to the test here, and to <laughs> you were good taskmasters and made us work hard. But I think we came up with a good show for you all. You guys deserve some of the credit too. So golf clap for everybody yeah, out there. Thumbs up for all of our <laughs> listeners. Great job. So remember, um, we've got. More, you know, feel free to send us mail at the mailbag. Because of the volumes of mail we're getting, we're going to be try to be a little more selective and just get the juiciest ones on. We all love you, and we'll always respond personally. But we don't necessarily. Not every mail that comes in is obviously going to make the mailbag. Exactly. We're going to try to keep this a little under control <laughs> from now on. But we'll always respond personally. But remember, Stephen at thespiel.net or Dave at thespiel.net, and we we look forward to hearing from you. But I think without further ado, we've we it's time to put a lid on episode twenty-eight. It's a wrap, yeah, baby. <laughs> I'm Stephen Conway, and I'm David Colson. So remember, whether it's the roll of a die, the turn of a card, or the flip of a tile, you don't have to play to win. You just, just have, have to play. play.